Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. Uh, every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m., uh, I do a health-related topic, and um, we are very pleased to have uh, Dr. Raymond Pete join us and has been a very long-term guest of the show. Um, very briefly, yep, we're definitely changing the seasons, going from late summer, fall, and the colours are beautiful, and hey, we're going to get some rain at some point soon, but no hurry. Um, okay, so for the past uh, 10 years, as I say, uh, we've been blessed to have Dr. Ray Pete on this show uh, to give his scientific perspective on what we are told is good for us medically. And from his research, uh, we've sought to educate and light the way for others to show the many misleading claims drug manufacturers make and uh, to expose the truth concerning many prevalent drugs prescribed without full knowledge of the science which clearly shows harm in using them. And last month uh, we covered the harmful effects of serotonin, which uh, a lot of people believe is good for them, uh, and the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are commonly prescribed using the false justification that they are beneficial for mood, depression, anxiety, etc. Uh, prior to that we discussed the ongoing war on words, all the ideologies concerning estrogen and progesterone with a huge amount of data showing estrogen's pro-carcinogenic activity whilst demonstrating progesterone's project, uh, protective anti-cancer benefits. And this month, amongst other things, I wanted to cover the misleading, dangerous and widespread collusion and cover-ups surrounding nitric oxide's propaganda in endothelial health and the heart attack risks associated with the infamous drug Viagra and how cholesterol once again is so important in the maintenance of good health from so many angles, and that the use of statins is so dangerous. So, Dr. Pete, are you with us? Yes. Thanks so much for giving your time again this month, and as usual, um, just tell people about your background, Dr. Pete, where you came from and um, what you spent your last four decades doing. Um, in the 50s, I was mostly studying humanities, uh, in the 60s, I got involved in experimental education, and uh, then in 1968 to 72, uh, did graduate school in biology for a PhD in in physiology. Okay, and you've uh, you spent the uh, last 30, 40 years that I know of um, basically gaining information um, and finding out that what you were taught. Uh, or what your professors wanted you to believe uh, was inaccurate and was not scientifically valid. Uh, when you looked at actual scientific research, you found lots of uh, conflicting information about things that were given or tenets that were held uh, as uh, the truth at the time. Yeah, over, over the years, I spent a lot of time in the university science library. And in all those years, there were only two professors that I saw repeatedly in the library looking things up out of several dozen. Because you I, were there a lot. <laughs> I was there a lot, and they weren't. It was rare to see. Interesting. Okay. Um, I wanted to carry on um, the kind of discourse here about the commonly, commonly uh, prescribed drugs that a lot of people will be very familiar with and how there really isn't... Um, any good information supporting their use and how, as you've mentioned in the past, the, gosh, the political uh, um, 
weight behind making decisions in FDA uh, approving drugs and the huge lobbying, financial lobbying that goes on from drug companies and right through to the indoctrination and uh, education uh, within the medical teaching establishments to further reinforce the uh, the ideology that they want to um, keep in place to support both drug manufacturing profits and, uh, dare I say it, sick patients that don't actually get better but are just kind of hanging on. Uh, the, the industry has promoted the idea that the only valid science to support a medical approach is um, uh, the um, uh, randomized, uh, blinded uh, study in humans, but uh, that requires a huge amount of financing. And only the drug companies want to put that much money into uh, that sort of thing. Uh, the average typical scientist actually looking for uh, things to explain how, how the organism works, uh, they do their experiments on animals uh, at a moderate expense, uh, maybe several thousand dollars rather than dozens of millions of dollars. And uh, so the, the drug companies say that animal research isn't valid for basing medical decisions, except when they don't have any valid human information. The drug companies will base everything on animal studies. Uh, for example, with estrogen, uh, they, they first tested estrogen on on dogs and found they killed them in various ways, so they shifted to to rats. And uh, the, the whole uh, science of uh, preventing osteoporosis by using estrogen, for example, is based on rats because they gave the, the right kind of result where dogs gave the opposite result. So by, by selecting their animal experiments, uh, they can gather up uh, information to support selling their product. But if it's anything critical of, of their product, then it can't be accepted. It has to be these huge, double-blinded, uh, controlled human trials. Right. I mean, in terms of uh, getting objective results, really people are probably the only... Uh, truly accurate representation of a drug's effects and the safety and efficacy of any any products. I know that the animal models are uh, kind of called akin to, or they have a similar physiology. And I know when they first started um, working with primates, obviously there was a big backlash against that after a decade or two. Um, and then they used, I say, beagles and things in the 70s for smoking experiments and then kind of worked their way down to... Um, you know, smaller, cheaper animals. I think the expense of it all sometimes is probably uh, relevant too. But in terms of trials, um, the trials that are done now with people, uh, those we would hope would pre present the best possible um, documented evidence for a drug's effect. But as you've pointed out repeatedly, when you actually look at the, the, the paper that's written to supply the evidence base for that use, Sometimes there's fairly glaring mistakes in the setup of the uh, trial or the um, 
inference that they get from the results and and sometimes it's just there in plain sight that what they're dealing with is something that's really not that not that uh, well known uh, and isn't that significant and actually uh, as you've mentioned before in the 40s and 50s when i don't think uh, there was such a lot of pressure financially uh, from medical uh, people to um, produce things and drugs to get manufactured and the whole you know the whole circle the whole wheel of the wheel of profit um that there's plenty of evidence um that they have found and um i wanted to mention the anti-serotonin drugs i think last month when we were talking um about this i don't know if i got to the um article which was published in the 40s uh, about the um effects of um ciproheptidine as an anti-serotonin agent um and antihistamine uh, on cutaneous allergy and so we have I, I mentioned the things like the SSRIs the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, which would block the uptake of serotonin making it more available more prevalent but yet here uh, in the 40s and 50s there was clear evidence that they were using anti-serotonin drugs to benefit people and how that just gets twisted um, when there's a mode and a, a way of manufacturing and spinning a product and, and putting it out to millions and millions of people at great profit. So, in, in my recent newsletter on cholesterol, uh, I mentioned that for decades it's been known that if you lower cholesterol, you you create depression, uh, suicidal tendency, mm-hmm. uh, uh, cognitive impairment, uh, uh, all kinds of, of physical. Yeah. Uh, ailments uh, that um, are, are um, demonstrably uh, damaging yeah. cell structure, uh, leading to these uh, disease increases. Um, but uh, just a, a couple of months ago, a new trial was started uh, to uh, supposedly treat atherosclerosis and heart disease mm-hmm. by removing cholesterol uh, from the arteries uh, using exactly the chemical, the cyclodextrins, Mm. that for decades has been shown to damage the organism and the specific cells by removing cholesterol from them. So, uh, for example, uh, one trial uh, years ago found that uh, just a short exposure to uh, the cyclodextrin uh, removed uh, first, it removed cholesterol from the uh, fibers of the hearing apparatus and the cochlear mm-hmm. uh, hair cells, causing deafness in the people. <laughs> and uh, an- animal studies made it clear that uh, these things are very dangerous, uh, damaging uh, brain cells, muscle cells, hearing apparatus, and so on. But the trial is going ahead uh, on the, the really uh, sort of crazy idea that uh, taking cholesterol out of the blood vessels Mm. is going to uh, improve the health and and prevent heart disease. Uh, About 30 or 40 years ago, I talked to a a, a person who is now a a well-known physiology professor. Uh, He, at that time, was proposing to inject very fine powdered ground glass intravenously to grind out uh, the cholesterol 
uh, from the atheroma. What? <laughs> uh, that, that really probably isn't as harmful as, as this current uh, human trial using the cyclodextrins. Huh. Let me just hold you there for a second. Uh, you're listening to Ask Your Rep, Dr. KMUD Garville, 91.1 FM, and from 7.30 to the end of the show, uh, you're invited to call in, hopefully with questions related uh, to this month's uh, continuing subject of uh, collusion in the medical industry. And um, this month I'm going to be asking Dr. P a little more about nitric oxide, um, and then we'll get into some of the uh, other drugs that have got lots of information about them that would uh, have you not use them if you really knew what it was about. Uh, the number if you're in the area or even if you're outside the area or even if you're in Sweden or Hong Kong, it's <laughs> 707-923-3911. Uh, so we'll take callers from 7.30 on. Uh, Dr. P, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about and it's something you mentioned in that last paragraph when you were talking about um, flexibility. You've mentioned before that um, cholesterol, and I think, I think I was probably correctly told this uh, when I was studying, um, that cholesterol introduces fluidity and flexibility um, into a molecule and that when cells become rigid, they rupture and they are not able, I mean, red blood cells, et cetera, et cetera, in the cell membrane. Um, this is this is probably another example here of um, the kind of nonsensical cholesterol uh, train of thought that wants to lower cholesterol artificially, and you mentioned that low cholesterol has been positively correlated with things like dementia, um, you know, um, negative neurodegenerative effects of low cholesterol because it's such an important molecule. Um, what do you what do you say about the uh, f flexibility? Uh, that's conferred to cells with, uh, you know, adequate cholesterol. The uh, best-known mod model of that kind of flexibility is the red blood cell, which has to fold up uh, to go through the, the capillaries, which yeah. are uh, narrower than the diameter of the cell. Uh, so if they are stiffened by removal uh, of cholesterol, uh, they just won't go through the capillaries and... Um, when they are put under pressure, they tend to disintegrate because of the brittleness. Yeah. But uh, that, that same stiffness has been identified in essentially every type of cell. It just happens the red blood cell is a very convenient one to look at and uh, measure the, the stiffness. But the, that lubricating quality of, of uh, cholesterol is something that... Uh, Really, the, the foundation of, of what it means goes back 90 or 100 years uh, to the work of uh, Bungenberg uh, de Jong, a, a Dutch uh, chemist mm -hmm. who studied emulsions, and um, he called the, the complex emulsion a coacervate or a complex coacervate, meaning a, a, a clustering together of, of uh, different phases of a, a different types of molecule. For example, a starch and a protein uh, don't just mix. They mm -hmm. find stability of containing uh, different proportions of the two polymers and different proportions of water. Um, so you get several phases with, with just those three substances. Okay. And, and those phases... 
have become stable, and each phase has its way of relating to small molecules, so that they will segregate uh, ions, sodium and potassium, and other molecules, sugar and urea and so on, uh, uh, in very complex ways. Uh, that led to uh, many people uh, followed up uh, with the implication for what it means for the cell having these different types of polymers, nucleic acid, uh, starches, proteins, uh, complex fats, uh, interacting in a system. And uh, uh, Gilbert Ling, for example, uh, was working directly out of Bungenberg de Jong's uh, basic uh, research on, on the physics of solutions. And uh, it's in this context uh, of uh, the, uh, the actual physical approach to biology uh, that uh, the, the current work on uh, wh how uh, cholesterol relates uh, to uh, uh, the various health problems the uh, cholesterol is, has a lubricating, limbering effect on, on these uh, coacervate uh, complex mixtures of polymers and small molecules. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, uh, the, the cholesterol, the, the people who ignore that physical basis of biology uh, talk about cholesterol as existing in cell membranes, okay. <laughs> but every protein in the cell is associated in particular ways with cholesterol. Right. Uh, the cytoskeleton, the, the structure that uh, creates cell division, uh, the uh, matrix that uh, regulates and, and holds the DNA in the proper arrangement, uh, uh, preventing uh, uh, certain regions of the DNA from replicating, uh, uh, allowing other parts to uh, be reproduced so that the cell can express only those uh, uh, proteins and RNA. Uh, all of this involves intimate uh, uh, the, the lubricating or relaxing effect of cholesterol on these uh, uh, large polymer molecules. Uh, the, the, um, the people who talk about cholesterol <clears throat> as simply a membrane substance, uh, some of them say that 97% uh, of the cholesterol in the cell is in the, uh, the cytoplasmic membrane, uh -huh. but that, that would ignore 97% uh, of its real functions, uh, which are to uh, control the entire physiology of the, of the cell. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, that, that explains uh, how, the, uh, how these studies uh, can be, uh, they, they can uh, seem to be sane <laughs> if they uh, ignore the, the actual science behind uh, what a cell is doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... I know we were going to talk a little bit later on about statins, and so what you've just mentioned here is in relation to statins uh, in terms of the, the very 
very damaging effect of statins and I know that um, they've been associated with cancers and several of them have been um, pulled off the market and they're always trying to find new ways to lower cholesterol with things that they perhaps are not calling statins anymore but by some other mechanism they'll do it but um, time and time again it's uh, shown that cholesterol is so important and actually a positive indicator of longevity when as you've mentioned uh, over the age of 50 for example uh, you're actually better off in long-term studies with a cholesterol that's right on the edge of the upper limit of the reference range or slightly over around 250 250 even there you go i mean 200 is what they call the cutoff point but 250 is uh, more protective for you okay let's i wanted to talk to you um i wanted to ask you rather about nitrous and nitric oxide and i this came up and um it kind of jolted me in terms of asking you about it because i know that around here and probably elsewhere people will understand what i'm about to say because they'll probably have seen it on the side of the road uh, which is commonly where you see it little collections of gas canisters and then there'll be you know beer cans and cigarette packets and other evidence of people hanging together and and quote unquote having a good time um the nitrous oxide <coughs> that's used uh, in these little cylinders is a propellant uh for oh i know whipped cre- for cream so it kind of yeah it gets whipped out of the nozzle under pressure and you can do things with it um and it's also used in some dental practices but i, I think it's fairly old. i remember it when i was a child in England, and they called it laughing gas, and some people were sedated with it. Um, it's not the same as nitric um, nitric oxide, although they're both very similar nitrogen-containing uh, compounds, one with one nitrogen, the other with two, but very different in their physiology. But they do both um, produce, as a byproduct of their metabolism in the body, nitrate and nitrite, which are very harmful. Um, do you know anything about nit? Can I start with nitrous oxide first? You- yeah, it, it can be metabolized into the others. Uh, so it's a, the immediate effect isn't as harmful as the nitric oxide, mm-hmm. but since the body can metabolize it into right. nitrite, nitrate, and nitric oxide, yeah. uh, you don't want to... Yeah expose yourself to it very many times. <laughs> yeah, because you, I mean, you see collections on the side of the road with 20 or 30 canisters and, you know, God knows what was going on. So people just don't understand how these things that they think are just harmless or just a bit of fun actually are very negatively impacting the health physiologically because of uh, the products that they're metabolized into. And then let's just talk about nitric oxide. I know you've done several newsletters on it in the past and you've mentioned it um, previously as being a very negative product. Um, I know that I wanted to ask you about Viagra, and um, it's obviously based on nitric oxide and how the drug companies basically managed to turn this basic poison into a medical product that they could market to a uh, very targeted audience. And uh, I think they've got a huge response from it in terms of sales because of its targeted use in erectile dysfunction. And um, how how its negative um, physiological effects far outweigh any short term effect that might be gained from you know solving impotence temporarily, um, when testosterone has another very similar um, effect, 
but uh, without the deleterious effects. So would you speak to nitric oxide? And um, also, the people that discovered uh, nitric oxide and got the 1998 Nobel Prize for it, um, from them and their research, they're obviously purporting this product to be very beneficial. Um, you know, we can't do without it. Um, it's used for uh, killing infections off from, you know, white blood cells. Um, they obviously mention it for impotence. And um, in atherosclerosis, they're saying um, that uh, it can be avoided <laughs> because it's, it's typically a, a symptom of low nitric oxide. In the early part of the 20th century, uh, several gases were known and, and uh, studied for their toxic effects, uh, cyanide, uh, carbon monoxide, uh, uh, self, uh, uh, hydrogen sulfide, uh, and nitric oxide uh, were, were uh, in various ways found to uh, uh, kill cells or impair their energy production, blocking respiration. And uh, uh, these have, over the years, found to be produced inside the body. And uh, some people say that uh, if the body produces them, they must uh, be beneficial. But uh, until about 1980, uh, when uh, uh, nitric oxide was uh, shown to be produced in the body, it was mostly known as the toxic component of smog. Right. Uh, but um, yeah. uh, as um, it came to be studied through the 80s, uh, several people were showing that that toxic effect contributes to diseases such as diabetes by, by knocking out oxidative energy production. But um, in the late 80s, uh, someone noticed that estrogen... Uh, acts by way of increasing nitric oxide. Uh, for example, uh, when the uterus is exposed to either estrogen or nitric oxide, it swells up, takes on water, and um, goes through its uh, oxygen-resisting type of metabolism. Uh, and that sort of thing happens everywhere under the influence of, of estrogen. And, and so the... the Estrogen industry has created a great myth about the benefit of estrogen, and so the nitric oxide people attached themselves to the estrogen nitric oxide interactions. And then the the Viagra came on the market. It was shown to intensify the effects of of the endogenous nitric oxide. And uh, that, uh, combined with the estrogen myth, uh, created a great surge of uh, uh, positive thinking about nitric oxide and suppressed all of those 10 years of uh, research showing uh, that it uh, contributed to various diseases, um, uh, brain damage, heart damage, uh, vascular damage, and so on. Uh, and all of that was reversed. And then for the, the next 10 years, 20 years, uh, it, it has uh, been, been uh, highly promoted as a wonder substance. That, uh, for example, uh, women with uh, 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 
pulmonary arterial hypertension, uh, uh, impairing their, their circulation, uh, creating a, a heart uh, stress. Uh, the uh, blood vessels were failing to open, and so they said uh, nitric oxide opens blood vessels. Let's have them breathe nitric oxide. But one of the functions of interfering with oxidative metabolism is that that causes cells to turn on collagen production and breathing nitric oxide uh, uh, creates fibrosis of the lungs and uh, I've known people uh, older women who were being given Viagra because of that uh, mystique of nitric oxide in the lungs Mm -hmm. Um, the um, the the whole history of, of nitric oxide and its toxicity was reversed to the extent that in the 80s people started saying smog is good for you. <laughs> uh, uh, in, in Mexico City, uh, they uh, found that kids who went uh, to the beach at low altitude and got away from the smog, uh, that they developed asthma. And they said that's because nitric oxide from the smog is curing their oh, asthma yeah. when they're oh, at home breathing it in the city. Uh, it, it, uh, there, there really is no limit to the uh, type of uh, adver- advertising <laughs> phony science that uh-huh. they'll do. Yeah. Okay, um, so just to let people know, uh, 7.30 uh, now, from now until 8 o'clock, if you'd like to call in with any questions uh, related or unrelated to uh, medical misinformation, uh, poor advertising, phony advertising, uh, drug culture uh, that we're all subjected to in advertising, etc., numbers 707-923-3911. You mentioned uh, also this uh, feature, and we've talked about uh, DNA uh, methylation in the past, and that um, there is a there is a uh, kind of uh, a, a conjoining of estrogen, uh, nitric oxide, and increased DNA methylation, which is heritable and it can be passed down. So it's not just the immediate effects; it's actually something that affects the DNA and can be heritable to the next generation. Uh, yeah, for example, it shuts down your energy-producing systems, and that shuts down your expensive organs and tissues, such as brain. And so uh, you can uh, turn off the, the best functions of the organism, not only in the individual, but pass it on to the next generations. <laughs> okay, because it's basically uh, something that's going to physically change um, protein transcription or other factors which are fairly um, fairly fairly defined and locked in as it were until such a change as the uh, such a time as the um, DNA is methylated uh, yeah I think anything that uh, blocks energy production high energy oxidative metabolism is going to do that same transgenerational damage shutting down the expensive but valuable organs. Yeah. Now, you said that nitric oxide also um, uh, kind of shuts down uh, the beneficial oxidative metabolism of glucose, 
and that's uh, something that uh, gives a very energy uh, energy expensive uh, process of any energy wasteful way of uh, producing energy. Um, uh, yeah, and in in the heart, uh, when the parasympathetic system, which is uh, uh, activated to an extreme in shock, uh, that slows down your heart and the parasympathetic acetylcholine stimulation activates nitric oxide production and that reduces the heart's ability to use oxygen so it's um, in effect creating a hibernation state. Uh, animals in the fall uh, increase their production of nitric oxide if they're going to go into the hibernating state. But in the heart, uh, the, uh, the stress and shock uh, reaction uh, can shut down the uh, energy production and uh, need for oxygen. Uh, within limits, it has its benefit because if you uh, can't use oxygen, you, you don't suffer in the same way from oxygen deprivation, but uh, what happens is that the function of the heart is restricted by that uh, reduced ability to use oxygen. The heart becomes unable to relax. Uh, Relaxation is a high-energy function. Uh, If you turn off uh, energy availability, um, um, contractile cells such as the heart or other muscles uh, won't be able to relax it uh, in the heart that will raise the the diastolic pressure usually um, the the whole uh, circulatory system fails to relax in between beats and having uh, not relaxed fully uh, then it can't beat fully so it it creates a progressive tendency to, to heart failure and that's an interesting concept that relaxation is dependent on energy. We tend to think that relaxation is a passive event. Um, uh, yeah, hypoglycemia or uh, uh, suffocation will uh, lead to uh, uh, constriction of blood vessels and uh, uh, even seizures. Uh, the, uh, the brain goes through a, a total activation when it, it's deprived of either or both glucose and oxygen. Mm-hmm. All right, just quickly getting back to nitrates and nitrites. Um, you've also uh, pointed out the fact that these are basically uh, byproducts of nitric oxides uh, oxidation, and these themselves have a very uh, metabolic uh, shutting, uh, shutting down of metabolic rate activity by themselves. And so I'm, I kind of think about I know they've been advertised now, probably through some of some of this information coming to light. But uh, the meats, the sausages, and things that they uh, now call uh, nitrate-free, and um, you know when they've uh, tried to preserve these meats, also um, to say that these nitrates are part of a uh, kind of a, you know, a preservation process, but that these are in themselves uh, metabolic regulators that they shut down metabolism. And so in that way, they had been linked to cancers too. Uh, Yeah, in 1970, they were definitely uh, identified uh, as cancer uh, carcinogen formers in the stomach. Hmm. Uh, And uh, now that nitric oxide has been promoted, uh, the nitrates uh, have lost their carcinogenicity apparently. (laughs) 
Okay. And then uh, there's also another causal link to um, Alzheimer's that's been um, shown uh, in relation to the uh, content of nitric oxide in the patient's body uh, when they are suffering Alzheimer's. Um, uh, yeah, starting at about the age of 40, uh, nitric oxide synthesis increases generally even in healthy people, but it's uh, intensified in the demented brain. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Ask Your Web Doctor, KMUD Gabriel 91.1. Uh, from now until 8 o'clock at the end of the show, you're invited to call in the questions related or unrelated uh, to this month's subject. The number is 707-923-3911. Um, so I'll ask you a question. My name is Michael. I'm from Redway. Uh, what is the amyl nitrate? There was poppers. I mm. think athletes used to do them. Yeah. How does that fit into all of this? Probably the same uh, nitrogen-releasing compound. Right? It's an amyl nitrate uh, used by... The gay industry, actually, I think, uh, was pretty pretty fond of amyl nitrate. Do you know anything about amyl nitrate? Uh, no, just just the legend, basically, that for a while they thought it was the cause of of uh, AIDS, uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, uh, it's it's still uh, considered to be a, a, an immune uh, destructive chemical. Hmm. Uh, an interesting. Uh, thing I saw recently was that uh, nitric oxide uh, stops the hair follicle renewal. And so if, if people uh, start thinking about baldness, they <laughs> might, might be <laughs> more interested in uh, investigating the, the dangers of nitric oxide than just heart disease or dementia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, between that and uh, neurovegetative uh, processes. Okay, so... Uh, I guess we'll move on to the things like we've mentioned the, the statins and lipid lowering drugs. We've mentioned uh, estrogen and progesterone um, in the uh, various uh, trials that have been done that are showing negative effects with estrogen. Uh, now we've mentioned nitric oxide. Uh, I've got a few others here that are the aid because it, it's such a yeah, it's so so vogue. But the um, ADD and ADHD drugs, but let's uh, we'll take a caller. We've got a caller. Uh, let's take this caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where, what's your question? And where are you from? Um, Mike from Connecticut. I have a quick question to Dr. Ray Peters. Wanted to find out what causes uh, faces and necks of uh, aging men to turn red more so than women, and was there any tips to avoid that? Did you get that, Dr. P? Uh, uh, no, not clearly. Well, to ask the question again, caller. I wasn't too sure of what you were trying to... Yeah, just wanted to know. Uh, I noticed that the aging men, they turn to the, their faces and next turn to oh, uh, start turning redder right. versus aging. women yeah. more so. Okay. just wondering if there's any root cause and how tips to avoid that. What do you think about that vasodilation or the ruddy cheeks that uh, he was saying that typically affects men or seems to affect men more than women? Um, I think it's uh, related to the, uh, uh, the the hot flush that women get at menopause, which is clearly a, a surge of nitric oxide. But uh, I think in, in men that there are other things, uh, including uh, an actual deficiency of riboflavin. Uh, I, th- I think that's... Uh, for some reason, a consequence of, of the nitric oxide poisoning that uh, riboflavin, vitamin B2, is 
essential for the respiratory energy production. Uh, and uh, the um, r- rosacea cheeks uh, and uh, uh, red, shiny nose and such, uh, the uh, uh, vitamin B2 is, is usually a factor in that. I've seen uh, uh, almost instantaneous relief uh, when someone got a big dose of, of vitamin B2, but it, it, uh, it doesn't last long once you've got a deficiency. Uh, the tissue doesn't retain uh, the vitamin B2 if effectively, so it, it seems to be a, a chronic problem of, of uh, getting the diet uh, converted so that you uh, every day are taking in uh, a little more than the normal amount of vitamin B2. Okay, thank you. For Great, that. thanks for the answer. Okay, uh, we've got two more callers, so let's. Oh, one more. Okay, let's take this next caller. Call your way from, and uh, what's your question? Oh, hi. Um, I'm calling from the Mendocino Coast in Albion. Um, my, the, I guess my main question is, um, cardiologists will frequently um, tell their clients taking uh, statins to take the CoQ10 mm-hmm. compound um, for fatigue, and I was wondering how that. Uh, helps. And the other thing they uh, have them carry around with them is um, the nitroglycerin um, stuff. So I just wanted wanted to know uh, Dr. Pete's feeling on the CoQ10 and um, how that works and why would the statins mess around with that anyway? The statins are poisoning the uh, the enzyme that makes uh, uh, cholesterol, and uh, that uh, system uh, it, it makes uh, several substances other than cholesterol, including uh, CoQ10. Yeah. And so uh, that's now widely recognized that uh, you're poisoning the whole respiratory system. Uh, oh, lovely. The, the okay. CoQ10 is is one of the other essential uh, factors for oxidative metabolism, and when that's deficient, the failure of energy can reach the point that muscle cells uh, lacking functioning mitochondria. If you exercise, uh, where um, uh, about seven percent of the statin users have some muscle pain. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you exercise while you're under the influence of the statin, you greatly increase the risk of killing the muscle cells because the energy production can't keep up with the energy expenditure. And if the muscle breakdown is complete, that can destroy your kidneys by the, uh, the, the flow of uh, debris from the disintegrating muscle. Yes, thank you very much. And so giving a, a good dose of, of CoQ10 mm. is very protective. And it isn't just protecting the muscles because the statin is doing exactly the same thing to the brain mitochondria, the heart mitochondria. Uh, CoQ10 is protective uh, to all systems. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. I'm going to hang up. Okay, and then uh, what do you think about nitroglycerin very quickly for uh, relief of angina as it was used in terms of, in terms of what it is? Um, it, it 
has similar side effects. Uh, it's uh, something that I, I think should should be limited uh, using uh, to relieve the symptoms, but uh, work on uh, correcting the problem with such things as CoQ10 and, and normalizing oxidative metabolism. Okay, we have another caller, so uh, let's take this caller call away from. What's your question? Uh, I'm from uh, New York, and uh, I have just a question. On, uh, I have two questions, but on the CoQ10, when you said a good dose, what did you mean by a good dose? Is that 100 milligrams, or is that more? I, I don't think anyone really knows uh, how to schedule the dosing. I think just by effect, if, if you feel your... Uh, uh, muscles and nerves are functioning properly. Uh, you don't get any muscle soreness or swelling. Then okay. the dose is probably enough. I think. Okay. So my two questions are: one, um, as you get older, um, uh, hydrochloric acid that's um, produced in your stomach uh, seems to decline. Uh, maybe it varies person to person. When it does so, um, no matter even if you're eating the best food, you know, maybe your diet. If you don't get enough HCl. Literally, you're not going to be able to digest it properly. You're not going to be able to actually efficiently metabolize the food in a way that ultimately allows all the functions that you talk about to, to occur. What I did more recently is instead of taking a dose of like 800 milligram tablet of betaine H HCL, I took a smaller dose, like 150, 200, just a little few capsules, and I take it with um, the glycine, uh, the, uh, the gelatin that you recommend, so that it doesn't cause any irritation, and I think it's improved the ability of my body to digest food. Is that possible? Oh, oh sure. Any acid. They used to uh, have uh, uh, drugstores would uh, dispense a glass of dilute hydrochloric acid with a glass straw uh, for people to uh, <laughs> sip to acidify their, their stomach during meals. Uh, but um, even uh, a strong vinegar Acetic acid uh, helps the enzymes to function, so the, the betaine hydrochloride definitely acidifies the stomach and works. But uh, one long-range concern is that betaine uh, feeds into the methyl uh, metabolism, and uh, you want to look at the long-range effects of increasing methylation. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, currently, it's stylish to uh, supplement methyl groups, but uh, one of the, the background facts is that if you decrease the methionine and cysteine in the diet of animals, uh, their lifespan increases 30 or 40 percent just by the absence of those uh, methyl donors. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would suspect that chronic use of, of betaine is going to uh, be like uh, increased consumption of, of the methionine and cysteine. Can I interrupt yeah, you, can I interrupt you, you for a second? Let's finish this, this point. So, so on this point, um, if you're taking glycine and the, uh, the gelatin, that that's, that sort of is a positive, and that's one of the ways that I think you've described to get away from those particular amino acids that are problematic. So if one's to take not 800 milligrams, but maybe, you know, a few crystals like 50 to 100 milligrams, just a tiny amount wrapped in that gelatin, it seems to me it's, yeah, you know, that's the long-term concerns you raise um, still that, possible. That, that'll balance it because the gelatin 
doesn't have the uh, uh, methyl donors. Okay. So my second question relates to if someone wakes up in the middle of the night, I guess they could either use the red lamp, they could get eat you know carrots or some milk, or they could actually take a CO2 bath. And in the night, obviously, cortisol raises up to, you know, I guess 5, 6 a.m. in the morning. Which combination of those would be, you know, reasonable, rational to use to try to help your body get back into a state of repair during that period of time when it's supposed to be repairing? You know, even though you might be sort of having a cortisol jump because you need enough protein during the day or whatever, or you can get the right combination of foods, what's a good way during the night to... You know, what, which of those methods might be useful or is a combination useful? Nitric oxide has the same curve rising to a peak around 7 a.m. Uh, along with, with uh, cortisol. And so uh, uh, light <clears throat> penetrating uh, red light uh, helps to uh, free the respiratory apparatus from both carbon monoxide and nitric oxide. Uh, so that is a way of, of protecting yourself from darkness. Uh, but sugar uh, and the thyroid function are producing carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is the basic uh, stabilizer against stress. What about a dry CO2 bath? If you can't sort of produce it in your body because it's sort of the middle of the night, what about sort of oozing it through your your skin? Um, yeah, your if, you, if you have a, is that another a, way to do it? Yeah, for example, uh, having a, a big plastic box full of CO2 by your bed. If, if you're yeah. having night stress, you can just uh, get out of bed and sit in your, your uh, box of CO2 and uh, absorb that for 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah. And with, without eating that, so if you don't eat, those, those are good methods. The reason I ask that is I'm doing it, and I think it works, and I just, I'm essentially trying to verify that what you think I'm doing is not crazy, and you're telling me, no, it's not crazy, it sounds like. I, I, no, it looks silly to sit in a, a giant plastic bag full of carbon dioxide, but it really, it, it's even in Japan, they're treating cancer with transdermal carbon dioxide. Certainly better than yeah, staying up for two or three hours. My wife looks at me like hours. I have two heads, you're right, it does seem odd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, not, thank, definitely not conventional. Thank, thank you very thank much, you Dr. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate your call there. Um, Dr. Pete, in the last few six minutes or so before the uh, top of the hour, um, I wanted to just quickly mention the uh, ADD and ADHD drugs um, that children are so increasingly prescribed uh, for their inability to focus and concentrate and how this is now treated as a disease for which uh, drugs like amphetamines um, are prescribed uh, for our young children. Um, what, do you, what do you have to say about that diagnosis of attention deficit disorder and uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? Um, things that impair the oxygen metabolism of your brain mm -hmm. do create uh, attention deficit. And uh, some of the studies found that coffee uh, improved focus and attention, not only in those with the diagnosis, but even uh, honor students had better focus when they uh, had a, a coffee supplement. Uh, so that there is a benefit from uh, uh, some, some supplements, but uh, uh, it happens that 
as far back as, as the late 1960s, people were noticing a connection between the amphetamines and lymphoma. Hmm. Uh, and uh, okay. I, I was aware of that because I had a, a close friend who uh, loved his benzedrine, <laughs> and uh, he died in his 40s from Oops. lymphoma. Uh, that kept me uh, aware of the research, and uh, for about 30 years, no one would admit that that connection existed, but uh, lately more people are recognizing that lymph- lymphoma is... is uh, the result of, of toxic stress. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, Ritalin, again, is one of those drugs that most people will recognize in uh, the prescription treatment of ADD and ADHD uh, to young, delicate brains uh, that are, you know, they should be just growing healthily away. And you've mentioned, obviously, all these things in the past that are very beneficial, like sugar, which is one of the things they'll want to keep your children away from. Um, obviously, improving your thyroid function, uh, with good nutrition. And it relaxes the nerves by restoring their energy and carbon dioxide production. Yeah. Well, it's just another uh, unfortunate example of how these things that um, are prescribed to us are developed uh, developed and weaponized, if you like, against us for massive profit and how there's really a lot of uh, dangerous side effects in a lot of these things and that most people... Um, don't really question it. The doctor's the doctor's the one in power, and uh, you do what the doctor says. And uh, unfortunately, you get on a um, a kind of slide. Your first prescription prescription then becomes a second prescription, becomes a third, becomes a fourth, becomes a fifth. You know. Anyway, um, without labouring that point, let me just um, close the uh, close the show. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor Pete, and uh, thank you for those people that called in. Um, really appreciate you giving your time like you do. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to just close uh, this show, and it's a little bit uh, close to 8 o'clock, not quite 8 o'clock, but there were a couple of um, things that I saw that kind of clinched it. Not that uh, talking about all this scientifically with all the evidence doesn't clinch it, but uh, you can go find this yourself. Um, Two of the most prestigious uh, journals, medical journals, journals of medicine in the world are The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. And these are two quotes that I'm going to read out now from uh, people that were at the head of these organizations as editors, etc. Um, Richard Horton, <coughs> excuse me, who's the editor, the editor-in-chief, excuse me, uh, of The Lancet, said this in 2015, that the case against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. And then... Dr. Marcia Angle, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, wrote in 2009 that it's simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that's published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. She said, quote, I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reach slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor. So this has uh, huge implications then, and as we mentioned in uh, the show before last in uh, August, that evidence-based medicine apparently is completely worthless if the evidence base is false or corrupted, which stands to reason. And um, there was another quote from Dr. Relman, another former uh, editor-in-chief of the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. He said this in 2002. The medical profession is being bought by the pharmaceutical industry 
not only in terms of the practice of medicine, but also in terms of teaching and research. The academic institutions of this country are allowing themselves to be the paid agents of the pharmaceutical industry. I think it's disgraceful. Okay, so for those of you who've listened uh, to the show this evening and called in, you can find out more information about Dr. Pete uh, online. His website is www.raypeat.com. He has lots of fully uh, referenced scientific articles that are not just his hearsay or his opinion, uh, but which are quoted and referred to and in very succinct style yeah, confer a lot of elaborate information that uh, you can find out yourself on the web. So do your research, folks. It's all out there. And uh, look at his website and his publications. And uh, when you hear him uh, and you've heard the previous shows, you can understand that he knows what he's talking about and he spent his whole life uh, studying it. So take advantage of it. And for those that have ears, let them hear. Uh, until this time next month, uh, yeah, have a happy fall. 